A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Ramdas here and now. And uh, I want to mention a couple of things. We are very fortunate to have so many wonderful different sponsors over the year, years, many years, and it's going on five, six years, um, that we've been doing these podcasts, probably more. Jeez. Anyhow... I did want to mention something else that goes a long way to helping support what we're doing at Love Server Member Foundation and Ramdas.org, Be Here Now Network. And um, that is just obviously liking and enjoying and interacting and benefiting from all of the different teachings through the various content platforms. And uh, that is phenomenal, and there is also stuff like at the uh, we have a wonderful store that has so many different things aside from all of Ramdas's books and other books and so on, like a new words of wisdom book from Ramdas that came out at the end just a few months ago, a couple of months ago, and it just helps to it's obviously. A number of Ramdas aphorisms and quotes, and they are designed so you can just pull one and in the morning, get up, open the book, look, and go, oh, okay, that might help set me off for the rest of the day. Like, I found one. Let me read this. This is one I just, I literally just opened to this page. You and I are not only here in terms of the work we're doing on ourselves, we are here in terms of the role we are playing within the systems we are a part of. If you look at how change affects unconscious people, you can see how change generates fear. Fear generates contraction. Contraction generates prejudice, bigotry, and ultimately violence. You can watch the whole thing happen, and you can see it happen in society after society. The antidote for that is a consciousness that does not respond to change with fear. That's as close to the beginning of that sequence as I can get, <laughs> Ramdas said. I mean, isn't it, it gives you a lot of food for thought, certainly, about uh, consciousness that does not respond to change with fear. I suppose once we all understand the reality of that statement, uh, we can only try and practice to get there. Also, by the way, we're working with a, a new company, Yes And. They make clothing. 
and uh, they are all about a sustainable future and moving forward, and they're devoting a lot of time to spreading consciousness around the environment and the earth and sustainability. And uh, so we actually, we got together and they made some wonderful new t-shirts, also available in the store, like Be Here Now, Be Loved Now, on one t-shirt, which is pretty much all you need, right? Is the, If we can follow those two things, we'll be in business. So those are other ways for uh, you all to help support uh, the work the foundation is doing. Thank you. So this particular talk from Ram Dass, 92, 1992, it's a number of different questions and answers. And uh, I like these Q&A things because they tend to bring stuff out of Ramdas that he may not have intended to speak about in a in a sort of themed talk. I mean, this one starts out with a funny thing. Somebody says, well, the you that went to Harvard, Richard Alpert, um, where where is that in relation to the Ramdas? <laughs> and he, uh, he does a great quote, which... We've all heard a million times, which I love so much. Well, I haven't gotten rid of any of my neurosis or Richard's neurosis, uh, but the monsters are now my little schmooze. And Richard, he said, has become the servant of Ramdas. <laughs> oh, God, just love that. Purification doesn't come, in, cannot come from um, having to do anything. If you think you're doing something, as I was told by our phenomenal mentor, K.C. Tuari, he would say, if you think you are doing it, my boy, you are lost. By the way, that film's being completed. We have a documentary on this extraordinary human that's going to come out this year that we're getting close. Purification out of yearning, you know, around relations and all the kind of judging we do around food, around our bodies. Uh, but the main thing that struck me here is when he talks about getting what you want. I mean, do you notice how we all manipulate to, of course, get what we want or ward off what we don't want? Ramdas terms it uh, around once you set this up in your life, you are pushing away the divine presence, whatever he called it. But with mindfulness, you get to see this motivational blah blah of self-interest that we go through and then you can work with it so that's probably a great definition of interacting with whatever is you are relating to with and being able to use it to to transform great stuff around guru uh what else oh i love this actually see i just share the stuff that i really love as i go through the talks to make sure we all don't miss anything that I think is really cool and important. I meet, he says, I meet my guru in a place of compassionate, loving emptiness. Okay, that's something to talk about words of wisdom. That's something to just grab and uh, just that sentence, just meeting, what is that compassionate, loving emptiness? And that that's a contemplation meditation, I would say. And then he says in the middle of this whole thing, he's like, 
he was going to do a talk called Riding the Waves of Change, which, God, I wonder if we have that anywhere. It sounds amazing. I've never heard of it. Um, and this is after listening to 3,000 lectures or something. All around the waves of change, meaning the destabilizing forces we're all living with today in this culture. Right? Is he talking about today, today? <laughs> or when was this, 93? Okay, and, and the main thing, the first thing he says is what precipitates this is the polarization between the have and the have-nots, this destabilizing forces, ecological imminence, breakdown of social structure. Uh, boy, he really gets into it here. But uh, polarization to me, that's stuff I talk a lot about, like with the different guests I have on Mind Rolling, the other podcast on Be Here Now Network. Uh, polarization is something I talk about with everybody. The idea that that polarization is inside each one of us. It's not out there. That's something else to think about. You may be babysitting the culture of which you are part of watching it die. Something like that. That sounds optimistic. But ultimately, fear is identification with what's dying. Cultivate the sky. Here's, yeah, this is the antidote of all antidotes. Cultivate the sky, which is that space of truth inside every one of us. Cultivate the sky. Love that. Well, there you have it, everyone. That's the podcast from Ramdas on Ramdas Here and Now. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, by the way, and catch all of the great teachers and presenters and thought leaders that we have on the network. We appreciate you, and we, as we swing into the thing of it in 2022, may we all be healthy and happy and may we really do as much as we can to reduce polarization. That's it. Bye-bye. She's asking about time and whether the Richard Alpert that went to Harvard is still existing. Who? <laughs> well, of course, I have my little cute response that I use all the time that... Uh, who I was then sitting in my therapy office with my necktie and my clipboard behind the desk would have hospitalized who I am now. <laughs> if who I am now came in to see who I was then. <laughs> because he would have to respond to the perceptions I have of reality in pathological terms since it would threaten the hell out of who he was then. Now, but yet he's here. He's here, but the other routine that I do all the time, which is just so, such a pretty image, I can't resist always doing it, is the, what, the thing I say of, in all the years that I've been through psychoanalysis, psychology, doing therapy, drugs, guru, mantra, meditation, spiritual practices, 
in all those years, in 30 years, I haven't gotten rid of one neurosis. Not one. They're all still here. So Richard Alpert is still here with all of his patterns. The only thing that's changed is that while all those neuroses were these huge monsters that would take me over, I mean, anything that was coming out of fear, like lust is coming out of fear, and I would be just like, oh, God is beautiful, you're beautiful, you're God, and lust would come along, and it would possess me, and I'd lock in, and then I would say, wouldn't you like to come up and see my holy pictures? Uh, and I'd <laughs> and I'd be horrified with myself, but I didn't care. <laughs> See, and at those points, those neuroses were really powerful, and they possessed me, and I was still Richard Alpertness. Now what they are is like these little schmoops, and they're my style. And hi, come on in and have tea. It's much more that quality of relationship. So all of Richard Alpertness's are now around, but it's more like, it's what they say about the mind. The mind is a great servant, but a lousy master. And that means the same thing as ego, because ego is a structure of the mind. That who you think you are is a great servant to have around in order to control the game on this plane. But if that's who you think you are, it's your master and you're trapped. So that Richard Alpert has become the servant of Ramdas. Ramdas means servant of God. So it's a progression of servants <laughs> back into nothing. Wow, that's true. <laughs> yes. How do I keep doing the things that, are, that I want, that are deep in my heart to do, like painting my mural and still let go of it? There was a, a cocktail party. This was uh, 25 years ago. And uh, at the cocktail party was the violinist Isaac Stern. And uh, he's a, for those of you who don't know, he's an extraordinary violinist, world-famous violinist. And so it was in the acid days, and uh, Isaac came up and he said, if he took LSD, would he be a better fiddle player? <laughs> I mean, would you paint murals more? And I said to him, I mean, I thought about it. I said, well, it would depend on why you took the acid. No. Oh, no, I said it would depend on why you were playing the fiddle. If you were playing the violin to please your mother, which could be, you know, a good Jewish neurotic <laughs> achiever to get love, like I was in. If you were doing that and you took acid, you'd probably see through it and you wouldn't want to play the violin anymore. But probably after about five years, when you quieted down enough, it's like having a grief reaction, after that, you'd begin to feel that out of all of the existential moment, you have this incredible skill to communicate, to touch those feelings, and you'd end up a better fiddle player than ever. He said, I think I won't take LSD. <laughs> So either you trust that the mural painting is coming out of the truth of your being and that the more you give up, the more you will be a better mural painter. Because that's what it is that is, is mural painting thus. Can you hear that? Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful question. 
synchronicity, which is the seeing the relationships among things and seeing the perfect ways in which they appear and juxtapose to each other, is true of everything if you're standing back far enough. And what's happening when you begin to see synchronicities is that you are no longer living on the plane of linear time where you're just seeing time going in one direction. And so you're seeing how it all works out as well as what is happening. And the way it's working out feeds back so that you feel in the moment the perfection of how it all is related to each other and it keeps blowing your mind. And what it is, is it's an opening to living on two planes simultaneously. And the part of you that doubts, that says, I want to know what's happening, is the mind, the intellectual mind, which is living in linear time, which can't know this synchronicity. That's bizarre because of the way it analyzes stuff. So you're getting two levels of process inside yourself happening simultaneously. I mean, that's the way I hear that. See, to say, oh, it's finally happening. Wow, look what's happening now. That's what would be called an astral mythic trap. You know, that's the Messiah's coming, the new age, Armageddon. It's a trip. It's an incredible trip, but it's trippy. It's not interesting enough. You don't, you don't understand what I'm saying? Well, those are three different levels I put together. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you want me to take them apart one by one? Astral is a vibratory level like normal waking consciousness, astral, causal, Brahma Loka, the void, planes. Mythic means on the astral plane, there are planes in which all of this seems like it's just humans hanging out in San Jose. Another one is we are ancient souls who have come together to gather in the cave as we've done millions of times to ask ourselves, what is the meaning of our existence? And we've been doing this for thousands of times. And it just appears that we're in these bodies sitting in San Jose. That's the mythic one. And the trip means that it's finite. It's finite. I am a therapist. I work with people who are really suffering. How to help them see that that is not the absolute truth of their lives when it seems so like the absolute truth of their lives. And that's your inner work on yourself. When you are resting in the place where it is not the truth of life, then the way you deal with them will be whatever they need from you, but all of it will be transmitting that appreciation that it is not the real suffering. But as long as their suffering sucks you into thinking you're a therapist helping them, everybody's just feeding it to each other. So the art of a therapist is the work on oneself until you are resting and therapy is happening because that's the existential need of the moment. Is that, yeah, it's great, that's nice, yeah. Uh, mother of a two-year-old, uh, uh, wanting to weigh the issue of responsibility to the child, to the economics, to the support, emotional support of the child, and, and trusting and letting go. See, it's a scariest example, but it's the same example as the mural example. 
that as long as you distrust the fact that in a free field, in the existential moment, that child's presence and its karmic relationship to you and its needs would define your appropriate response so that you think you have to hold yourself in to do it right. But when the minute you let go of that, if it is right, you'd of course do it. So the answer is in a way that you use your relationship with your two-year-old child as your yoga until you are there with the child doing it all and nothing is being done. Because you see in your child, just it's like God in drag, if you will saying, I'm a little child, take care of me, and you get sucked into motherness. There's that great image in, um, the, in the image of um, Krishna and Krishna's mother and Krishna's Gopala, the baby Krishna, and he's being rocked by his mother, and he already knows who he is. He's an avataric form. He's fully everything. And so he opens his mouth to yawn and his mother is looking down adoringly at him and she looks into his mouth and there are all the planets and the stars and the galaxies and all. And she freaks. She absolutely freaks. And then what he does is out of compassion, he once again veils her eyes with mother love. Hear that one? I mean, that's in so thick. You know, he veils her eyes with mother love. And the art of having them both going, that's the having the mother love and having the, just the spaciousness, being the therapist and having the spaciousness. It's the whole question of where acts come out of and whether you trust enough that what you're doing is in the way of things. And the more you trust, the more you have to let go of I ought and I should because when you open, it is. I mean, I keep giving up teaching. <laughs> See how good it is? Yeah. How to practice compassion with people you find it hard to love. Well, um, I do lots of little exercises around that. And what I see is I begin to be interested in who I don't love rather than who I love. At first, when you're living in a non-loving space in your head, you're so excited by somebody you love, you want to possess them. After you start to be resting in love, you're surprised when somebody you don't love. And you get fascinated with why you don't love them. So that what I notice is that there are people whose actions I'm so righteous about that I can't open my heart to them. There are other people who are, have some symbolic value awakening something I want so bad that I can't open my heart to them. Like I'm still, because I fundraise and I'm coming out of my background and I'm living in this culture, wealth affects me. So I can be with five people and I can see God in four of them, and the fifth one, all I see is a rich person. You know? Now, I know there's God in there, but I can't get through to it because I got so sucked in by the veil. And I become interested in what sucks me in. And that's what I work with. I just sit and look at that person and hang out with them and keep working to go beyond it. 
keep going behind it, keep going behind it, and realize the distinction between abhorring somebody's action and abhorring them, and learning how to do what Kabir says of do what you do with another person, but never put them out of your heart. See, now that's a practice. And every time you put them out of your heart, you realize you're only seeing one plane of reality and you reach to see behind it. Okay, does that deal with your question? It's nice. Yeah. I think purification is a lot like what I just answered before, which was as you get to the point where um, you're starting to taste the fruits of your spiritual effort, you're starting to understand what it's like to be in the ocean or to be in the sky or something like that. In other words, after you taste and acknowledge and allow the truth of the high to sink in, then you look at those things which bring you down, which catch you, which turn you off, and you start to clean them up. And that's really the purification that comes out of the yearning, not out of I ought or I should, but really out of a yearning. And then you see that the foods you eat might affect your consciousness. Or, and it depends on the attitudes you have about it also. It might be the way you relate to people because you can feel that when you're in love with the world, there's this liquidity and it's all fresh and happening. And the minute you turn off to judging somebody or disliking them, there's a whole block that locks in and it gets thick. And you start to work with that edge and that's purification. So you begin to see that when you lie to people or you steal from them, it closes off something. And you, it's like pushing away the beloved. And you finally realize that even though you could get some advantage from lying or stealing, what you get isn't worth what you lose. Then it's purification. Can you hear where it's coming from? See, the early purification is like the biblical injunctions, the 10, you know, don't do this or you'll go into hell. That's the fear one. You can motivate a lot of purification from fear. The other is motivated by love, by the yearning towards it. Boy, that's interesting. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. She's uh, interested in guru-ness because she has a guru and uh, it's like letting, do you let go of the guru or what happens, do you hold on and what does honoring the guru mean and so on. Um, when I met my guru, who was a, a, a sadhu in India in a blanket, his relationship to me mirrored for me the way in which how I wasn't, how I wasn't. And as such, it helped me a great deal. And also, he showed me the possibility of unconditional love because he didn't care whether he lived or died. And that opened my heart in a certain way. And that started a process. Now, then he died in 73. And the question is, did I miss him? And for a little while, I missed the form. But then I saw that what was mirroring from him wasn't the form. And over the time, at first I had the pictures of him and the memories of the stories and the moments. And then an interesting thing happened. Um, I edited a book of a thousand stories about him, The Miracle of Love, just a lot of little stories. And in the course of that, there were some 2,000 stories collected. Um, 
I uh, just kept hearing the richness of the storyline. But when the book went out, a number of people read the book and looked at the pictures and then had experiences of connection to him. And when they told them to me, they had a ring of validity, of truth to them, where I realized then that they had the same guru I had, even though they hadn't, didn't have the storyline of the being with him. So that was one of the things that started to change the nature of my relationship. I saw that it didn't matter whether the guru had been a form alive or not. Then the next part of that whole business was that over the years, it got emptier and emptier and emptier of form, where now I meet my guru most intimately in the place of wisdom mind, of emptiness, and of emptiness and just compassionate emptiness, of loving emptiness, so that I still have the guru but the form of the guru has been changed into the deepest part of the being. And so that when Ramana Maharshi said, God, guru, and self are one and the same thing, you see where that leads you finally. Okay? He said, I feel a lot of fear around events that are happening, like the L.A. riots. And... Uh, things of that nature. I've been giving a lecture a lot, which I'm not giving this weekend particularly, but it's been calling, it's called Riding the Waves of Change. And um, it talks about the destabilizing forces we're living with at the moment in this culture. And what precipitates the destabilizing forces the polarization between haves and have-nots, destabilizing force, the ecological imminence of the results of our karma of technology, destabilizing, including nuclear waste, destabilizing force, the breakdown and changes of the social structures in the system, that is, the breakdown of the extended family, the lack of respect for authority, the inability, the not having any wise people in the tribe any longer. I mean, there's a whole set of breakdowns of systems. Um, now, and there are more, but taking just those few, how do you respond in a way to all of the uncertainties and changing forces and the potential that it may end up dying? That is, you may be babysitting the death of the culture of which you're a part. Okay. So how do you be at your own death? Interesting. And the fear you're having is because of your identification with that which is dying. And the work on oneself is to find the space in oneself or cultivate the sky or the ocean which has nothing to do with death. And the more you rest in that, the more you can dance with the fear and the change and that which is frightened. I mean, you don't deny the fear. The fear is the fear of you as a separate entity. The non-fear is the fear, is the non-fear of you as part of everything, because as everything changes, like when you're inside the ocean, the fact the ocean makes a wave doesn't frighten you because it's just part of yourself that's doing the wave and then coming back into itself. 
And the LA riots is part of yourself. And the fear and the anger and the lack of opportunity and the, all of that stuff is part of yourself. And when you feel that, in other words, the totality of the identification, it's all an internal matter as it goes through its paroxysms of this and that. It may mean your IRA isn't any good, or you lose your house, or you don't get medical attention, or you die. If you can be at peace with all those, you can really ride these waves. And then you can bring peace into the situation, which is the optimum condition. See, what's happening is as things get destabilized, people get frightened, just like you do. When people get too frightened, they get very rigid. They try to hold on to what they've got because they're afraid. They try to stop change. But you can't stop change because change is the nature of things. It's like trying to stop death. You can't stop it. You can't keep the leaves on the trees. You can't stop the process. But in your zeal to do it, you get very fanatic. So you have fundamentalism. You have neo-nationalism. You have a lot of ethnic prejudice, increase in anti-Semitism. You have a lot of these things that happen to stop. You have Jesse Helms, you know, trying to stop the game. And the game can't be stopped. So ultimately it leads to violence. And the art form is to be part of that in the universe which can handle change without being, without being reactive to the fear by cultivating the parts in yourself which are not afraid. Am I dealing with your question? That's the short form of that lecture. I think this is useful. Just to, yeah. Uh, he's asking about the relation between the body and spirit and psychology. And um, it's, uh, what, what is that relationship and how are you working on the body? Is that a spiritual path? And why do wise beings often have big bellies? Um, actually, most of those wise beings, if you, they're old at that point. If you get them young, they're usually really scrawny. See, because they didn't eat and stuff. And then, so they, they, you get pictures of all these Nityananda, Maharaji, all of them, Ramakrishna. They're all skin and bones at one stage. Later, they're fat. So it's like, a, what's that thing where you throw up and eat and throw up? It's like uh, bulimia. <laughs> they go from bulimia to, it's all pathology. The other level of answer about that third question is that, um, they, uh, they start to, that the whole process of opening into these uh, vibratory rates of existence as you awaken is that there are different kinds of energy in these rates. It's like going from 110 to 220 in terms of plug-ins. Most toasters get fried if you stick them in a 220 by mistake, unless it says on it 110, 220, okay? So that, for example, when I used to take acid a lot, I would definitely go somewhere. But when I gave acid to my guru, who had one of those big bellies, nothing happened. And he took like four major doses. Nothing happened at all. Because when you're in Detroit, you don't have to take a bus to Detroit. Okay. <laughs> now, 
what does it mean to be fully at Detroit? Okay, what does it mean to be fully at Detroit? It means to be in all those different energy planes all at once. And on the physical body plane, the word is often used as shakti or energy. And the body can be thick so that it's grabbing your consciousness all the time, or it can be so light that it's a support for your spiritual liberation. And so a lot of the purification of the body through diet, through working with the energies of the body, as a process of purifying the body so that it, it is a support rather than a holding back quality. Now, the other part of it is the whole... Am I supposed to read this before? No. Okay. The whole thing is a strategy of working with energy. See, just as we work with the mind in meditation to draw the awareness back from identification with thing or self or anything in order to rest in itself, and then we use the heart in order to love something until we merge with the beloved. It's like going through the foreplay into the moment of orgasm. It's that transcending dualism. So you can take the energies of the body and work through breath control and through asanas and various kinds. You can work to move the energy up the spine through the various centers of dualism to the top of the head where the merging occurs. You can do all that through energy. So that these are different strategies. Some people are really drawn towards working with energy and they do what's called kundalini yoga or tantra, working with energies of forms. Others work with mind and there are different strategies for doing that. And then others work with heart. So it's just a different strategy. Am I dealing with your question? Yeah, the question, see, the body is in a funny way, it's like each, each subsequent grosser plane is in a funny way a reflection at a thicker level of density of the same storyline. So that that's what Ida Rolf and all those people have found out, that the body has a, a mechanism that reflects the personality dynamics. The predicament is that when you go to a body strategy, you can release the, the tension in the body, but if you don't change the mind, the mind will recreate it again, right? And in the same way, it works the other way, that because the body affects the mind, so that if you start to release the mind, but don't release the body as well, the body will keep recasting the mind. Oh, slowly the body will, if you release the mind fully, the body slowly will just run its stuff by and then get rid of its stuff, okay? But if you don't release, if you only release it into still psychology, it'll recreate itself. The, body, the body's powerful enough, the habits are strong enough. Like if you're sitting like this, see, and you've got a whole philosophy like this, you know, and then you have an enlightened experience and then you come back from the enlightened experience and you're sitting like this, it'll start to suck you back into seeing the world that way, right? Go ahead, yeah. Who do I feel my peers are as Ramdas? And who do I feel my peer, or how did my peers shift along the way? That's, in a funny way, what I feel now is that you are my peers because we are all on a journey asking the same question. 
and we're comparing notes, and I'm merely a mouth for a process. So I don't see, like I don't think I'm talking to you as somebody, I'm not identified with being a teacher like I know and you don't. I'm a mouth that's saying, because when you hear what I'm saying, I look around and I say things and people are going like that. Well, how do you know? Who you must have known already. You know, and I'm just, you're, I'm agreeing with something that's deeper in you than the one you're used to getting hold of, right? But it doesn't mean it's not in you. There's no way, like, you and I don't have the same thing. So I don't experience that. I mean, I don't have a sense of peers like that. And I hang out with various people almost totally pragmatically. That is, people with whom I have a game going, like the Save a Foundation or the Touring or Jai's and my work together. I mean, I think that I, I wouldn't know how to figure who to hang out with on the basis other than that. I mean, it, it's interesting because when I hang out with the people that are the densest, that just means that I got the most work to do because I see them as the densest. See, and the question is whether I'm lazy or not. Because it's easy to hang out with satsang at a certain point or sangha or the community of people who say it just like you say it, who are trapped just like you're trapped. I mean, I'm playing many levels now, but you hear, you, am I dealing with the question? Now, I can say, well, there was a stage. I mean, um, you, then the question is, see, who I hang out with are as much I can with my role models as possible. And my role models are people like Ramakrishna, like Jesus, like, I mean, a whole raft, my guru, like uh, Ramana Maharshi, um, and then I take teachings, like I was just in a Buddhist retreat taking teachings from uh, a Kempo Rinpoche, a beautiful Tibetan Lama, exquisite being. And um, I was in Burma a few years ago studying with Sayadaw Upandita from a different tradition, a South Buddhist, a Theravadan Buddhist tradition. And uh, there's a strategy where you see everybody is your teacher and everybody is your student and everybody is your lover, and that's all part of the process of integrating all of it. So that from any moment, you're just in a situation. This situation is teaching me as much as I am teaching, right? And so it's a little more complicated than who appears. Yeah. It's the same question, see? You see the problem. Huh? Yeah, living people. Aren't you living? <laughs> That's it. No, I mean, I know what you want me to do. Give you a list. Uh, there'll be, uh, you know, uh, Da Lavananda, and there'll be, you know, and things like that. Sacha Sai Baba, and uh, they're all neurotic messes. <laughs> and I'm the only enlightened one. And uh, there we are. Oh, they're all great saints, and I'm really just a deluded, attached person. I don't really care, you know. That's what's so far out. That's Okay. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.